Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the peoples who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father, Abraham, and God of my father, Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the, mothers with the children. But you said, I will sure you, surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So Jacob stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. Jacob likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For Jacob thought, I may appease Esau with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched Jacob's hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. 
Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, and Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged Esau, and Esau took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. And Jacob came safely to the city of Sheshem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shesham's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of, of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This morning we continue on our journey with Jacob and pick up at Genesis 32, right where we left off last week, when Jacob has finally gotten away from Laban. And last week I mentioned that by this time in Jacob's life, he has passed a few milestones in his process of 
maturation. He had learned to trade, becoming extremely proficient in raising livestock. And he had also grown some emotionally, as demonstrated by his ability to leave behind Laban, his narcissistic uncle and father-in-law. So Jacob is progressing in his capacities to deal with life on life's terms. However, there are still many, many ways that Jacob remains immature, both emotionally and spiritually. And we see evidence of this fairly quickly in Genesis chapter 32. As Jacob heads back toward his family's home in Canaan, by verse 3, we're reminded that his 20-year-old conflict with his brother Esau still remains unresolved. You'll recall that Jacob had cheated Esau out of both his birthright and the blessing of their father that was due to Esau as the firstborn son. And this had resulted in Esau wanting to kill Jacob, which led Jacob to flee their home for distant Haran. So now Jacob is returning. And even though Esau is in Seir, where Esau will eventually settle, and which is pretty far to the south, actually, if you look at the map in your bulletin, Jacob recognizes that his coming home will necessitate that what happened between him and his brother get to some point of resolution. So Jacob sends messengers to alert Esau that he's coming home. But look at what Jacob has his messengers tell Esau. In verse 4, he instructs them to say to Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Well, as many have observed, with this message, Jacob is trying to signal to Esau that he is not returning home to claim that birthright, that inheritance that he had stolen because he no longer needs it as he's become financially independent and established without it. However, in verse 6, Jacob's messengers return to him and report, we came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. In other words, upon receiving Jacob's message, Esau gathered an army 400 men and began heading Jacob's way, which seems to confirm Jacob's worst fear that even after all these years, Esau still remains angry with him and wants to kill him. Naturally, this causes Jacob to be greatly afraid and distressed. So what does he do? Well, he responds as he has so many times before when his life has felt out of control. He relies on his own wits. And in verse 7, the best he can come up with is dividing his caravan of family, servants, and flocks into two camps. Verse 8 explains that his logic is that if Esau comes to, to the one camp and attacks it, then at least the camp that is left will escape. However, after that, perhaps coming to realize that even his best idea risked him losing half of all he loves. Jacob does think to ask God for help. He prays in verse 9, O God of my father Abraham 
God of my father Isaac, a Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan 20 years ago, and now I've become two whole camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So as they say, there are no atheists in a foxhole. In this moment of crisis, Jacob is calling in all the promises God has made to him. And yet what he does after this prayer could not possibly be what God would want. In the next paragraph, Jacob takes from his flock a considerable considerable present to send to his brother. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, and so on. So Jacob's clearly just trying anything and everything that he can think of, right? He's hoping that something will get him out of this jam, whether it's God or some of his strategies. But while sending his brother such a substantial present may sound generous to us, Jacob's really just being manipulative, First, he tells his servants to put space between each of the droves he sends, which would have had the effect of keeping Esau's men extremely busy just receiving these animals and certainly prevent them from advancing toward him. Right when they had received one drove, here would come another and another and so on. Second, the servants Jacob sent, you know, who brought these droves to Esau, who would have been loyal to Jacob, they would then be among Esau's men, which would certainly complicate any potential efforts by Esau to attack Jacob in any sort of unified way as people loyal to Jacob are amongst his troops. But third, and perhaps most significant, the end of the paragraph explicitly states Jacob's reason for sending this present is to buy his brother off. Verse 20 says, For Jacob thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So rather than owning the ways he'd wronged his brother and making amends, or seeking to, Jacob wants to buy his brother's favor. He wants to buy it, buy him off. And while this may seem shrewd from a worldly perspective, clearly Jacob is still intent on trying to grasp his own way to blessing and happiness and peace in his life rather than following God's ways and receiving blessing from the Lord's hand. And he still seems willing to do so, even at the great cost to others. As some have read what Jacob does in verse 22, where he sends his wives, servants, and children on across the river, which is otherwise inexplicable. Many people have read this as Jacob putting his wives and family in between him and Esau, who he thinks wants to kill him, as a final line of protection. (laughs) 
I'm sure they appreciated that. But despite Jacob, for the most part, operating as he always has, that prayer of his in verses 9 to 12, it was just about the most humility he'd ever shown before God. So perhaps what God does that night is in response to that prayer. As the Lord encounters Jacob in a life-changing manner, while he camps by himself near the river Javik. As Craig Barnes observes, in some ways, God finally has Jacob right where he wants him. Or at least at a place where Jacob cannot keep avoiding him. Because Jacob is finally all alone. The circumstances and Jacob's scheming have finally left him without a job, without his flocks, his wealth, without his wives and children, without everything Jacob had tried to use to manufacture blessing for himself, but that had also insulated him from having to really face up to God. Verse 24 says, Jacob was left alone. When suddenly he's attacked, a man blindsides Jacob and begins to wrestle him. But who is this man? Perhaps it's a bandit. Maybe it's his brother Esau. It's too dark to tell. But Jacob fights back, giving him everything he's got. And verse 24 tells us they wrestle until the breaking of day. So Jacob's probably bloody and exhausted, But he seems to be getting the upper hand in this wrestling match. That is, until midway through verse 25, where it says, When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched Jacob's hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. In other words, it seemed like Jacob was winning. Jacob thought he was winning, probably until suddenly his opponent simply brushes his hand over Jacob's hip, and Jacob feels a sudden, searing, wrenching pain. His hip has been dislocated by just a touch. And so suddenly Jacob realizes that this man is no mere human opponent, because no mere human could do that, Rather, Jacob realizes this man is God. Though he thought he was wrestling against a man, Jacob had really been wrestling against God in a human body. Now, this is a pretty peculiar episode, even by Bible standards. But I want us to just stop here and consider why would God come in the form of a human and wrestle Jacob? Moreover, why would God let Jacob get the upper hand in the fight and allow him to think, at least for a while, that he, Jacob, was going to win? Well, as I've explained about this passage before, God is trying to teach Jacob first about the reality of how he'd been living his life. 
Jacob's whole life, he had grasped and clawed to secure blessing for himself, whether through stealing Esau's birthright or marrying Rachel or becoming indispensable to Laban or seeking to get rich. For his whole life, Jacob had been doing this. And Jacob wouldn't have done that if he didn't think it was the winning approach. Just like he believed he was winning this wrestling match. And yet what he didn't understand was that living this way was really living his life in opposition to God. He was really fighting against God. And in verse 25, God demonstrates the foolishness of that. The foolishness of fighting against God when he disables Jacob so easily once he's ready. God had wanted Jacob to seek him and receive the blessings he had for him. But now Jacob has finally found himself in a position where he has little choice about it. And this is because by putting his hip out of joint, the Lord takes all of Jacob's power away. I mean, physically. God renders him with that wrestling move. God renders Jacob physically helpless. All Jacob can do is collapse on top of him. So that is the context of verse 26 where God says, let me go for the day is broken. It's not because Jacob still has him pinned. Jacob's still winning the fight. No, his hip, with his hip disabled, Jacob's weight is now completely being supported by God. And if you can picture this in your mind, it's really a picture of the spiritual posture that God wants all of us to have in life. Allowing him to carry us like a shepherd carries his sheep, totally reliant upon him. So after living his whole life trying to acquire blessing for himself through his own means, Jacob has now been humbled before God. And he does what he should have done all along. And that is seek blessing from God. When God says, let me go, get off me, because it's, you know, daybreak and I'm God. You're not supposed to see my face. That's one of the rules in the Bible. Jacob replies, I will not let you go. I won't get off of you unless you bless me. Now, while this might sound like Jacob's bossing God around, you better bless me. What he's really doing here is what God wants him to do. As Jacob is finally looking to God to bless him instead of anything and everybody else, right? So God says to him, what's your name? And he says, Jacob. And God says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed God changes his name from Jacob, which means heel grabber, to Israel, which means striven with God, thus marking the conversion, really, that Jacob has had here from self-reliance to relying upon the Lord. Now, what's most striking about what follows this is the shift in how Jacob approaches then his brother Esau. I mean, the day before, he'd been terrified. and He'd responded with various conniving tactics. Yet when chapter 33 opens, remember, it's now morning, daybreak. 
And verse 1 says, Jacob lifts up his eyes to see Esau coming with his 400 men. Well, as Craig Barnes writes, after you've survived the dark night of wrestling with God, it's sort of hard to still be afraid of the world around you. And he explains that this is because Jacob is now clinging to a blessing. Now remember, Jacob still doesn't know his brother's intentions. But notice, this time Jacob puts himself between his family and Esau. 33.3 says, Jacob goes before them to meet his brother and then bows himself to the ground seven times. So rather than trying to protect his own rear, Jacob is making himself vulnerable. Instead of conniving, he's now humbling himself. And surely to his surprise, God's grace has also moved on the heart of Esau, who runs to meet Jacob, who embraces him and kisses him, having clearly forgiven him. So the first thing to notice about chapter 33 is how differently Jacob perceives and approaches his brother after having humbled himself before God and received God's blessing. And while Jacob still insists that Esau accept his gift of livestock in verses 10 and 11, it seems now to be more out of thanksgiving for the grace God has just bestowed upon his relationship with Esau. And yet there is a second thing to notice in this chapter. And that is that by the following paragraph, Jacob's newfound nobility sort of runs out of gas. Esau seems to expect, even presume, that Jacob will want to return with him to Seir now that they've made up. But Jacob has no intention of doing this. Indeed, Jacob would be disobeying God to go to Seir because God had told him to return to Canaan. Yet rather than just saying this to Esau saying, the Lord's called me to go home to Canaan. You know, I appreciate the invite. Hope to catch up at the next reunion. Instead, Jacob deceives Esau in verses 13 to 15. He deceives him into believing that he'll meet Esau and say a year later when he never has any such intention. Now, as to why Jacob doesn't feel he can be honest with Esau we can't know for sure, but perhaps he's struggling to believe Esau has really forgiven him and is afraid that Esau might change his mind if he doesn't people please, right? But honestly, I am grateful to read how Jacob has this act of humility that shows tremendous growth, but then in the next moment almost reverts to one of his old sinful habits, I'm grateful to read that myself because that parallels the struggle for all of us who are in Christ. As Paul later describes in his letters, though we've been given a new identity, all of us still live with that daily, hourly, even minute-by-minute minute choice of whether to live out of that new identity in Christ or not whether to yield to Christ's Holy Spirit within us or to live out of the sinful condition we were born into that Paul calls the flesh. 
So even having been born again, where life in the Spirit is available, when it comes to living into that new identity, the struggle for all of us to do that is real, right? In fact, perhaps nobody in the New Testament demonstrates this better than Simon Peter, who was mentioned in our other passage today, right? In fact, the parallels between how Jacob responds to Esau in Genesis 33 and how Simon Peter interacts with Jesus in Matthew 16, there, there are some strong parallels here. They're startling, right? Because there in Matthew 16, Simon proclaims Jesus as the Christ, right? As the Messiah. And Jesus gives Simon what? A new name. Peter, which means rock. But if you were to read past our passage, literally just three verses later, what happens? Jesus has to rebuke Peter for setting his mind on the things of man rather than the things of God and says to Peter famously, get behind me, Satan. So just because we've been given this new identity in Christ it does not mean we're always living out of it. And yet, without a doubt, when Jacob wrestles with God, this clearly marks the most significant progress to this point in his maturation as a follower of God. So before I close, I want to invite us just to drill down into that for a minute, into these 24 hours of Jacob's life that we read about and to consider our own lives in this light. Just as Jacob had been freaking out when he heard the news that Esau was coming toward him with 400 men, I want to invite you this morning to consider perhaps where you've been experiencing some level of distress or dread or anxiety recently. Perhaps, like Jacob, it's around a relationship where you've made some mistakes and it's just hanging over you. Perhaps it's some character flaw that we've been refusing to own up to or an old hurt we've been holding on to. Or something we're angry with God about but haven't really ever gotten it off our chest with him. In Jacob's case, what happened between he and Esau had loomed like a shadow over his life for 20 years. And he tried to cover that guilt, to cover over it, the guilt and the negative feelings by running away, by pursuing wives and work and wealth, but all to no avail. And at this point, God wouldn't allow him to ignore it anymore. I wonder, is there something like that in your life, in our life, it just gnaws at us, where we know the Lord is calling us to look at it or seek counsel about it, to wrestle with him about it? Jesus is inviting us to face up to it with him. But when we're ready, you know, perhaps you're still not ready. Perhaps you know exactly what, what it is. The Lord's put something on your heart, but you're not ready to go there. Well, this may surprise you, but I would say that's okay. 
Because Jesus isn't going anywhere. And his grace allows room for us to not be perfect and even to balk at where he is inviting us to go. If he doesn't condemn you, neither do I. But so long as we fight that and fight going inward with God, our growth in him will be stunted. And the relief and the blessing enjoyed by Jacob on that other side, that will elude us. So when you're ready, trust that God will be there waiting. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen.